So we're starting a new series today um, called Vision, Mission, Values, and we're going to be looking ahead to where we believe God is going to take us as a church and what it means to have a sharper vision, mission, and values as we go forward. Um, and one of the things that I thought was interesting is, is just to kind of show you where we've come from before we take a look at going forward. Worship has always been a in significant part of this of this church community, um, but at times we haven't even had our own worship team, and at times we haven't even had a, very many people. In fact, three years ago, we were just meeting on Sunday nights in my home, and uh, we were asking friends from other churches to come in and play uh, music for us. So I just want to show you a one-minute video of three different times when we met in October, just to kind of give you an idea where we came from. It's our That was the, the beginning of just this worshiping community, uh, 20, 25 people maybe in my living room worshiping and singing and praising Jesus together. And I wanted to show you that because today we're going to talk about worship, uh, specifically even as we talk about our vision and our mission and our values. I want to share with you what I mean when I say vision, mission, and values. Vision is this compelling picture of the future. It's not here right now. It's something that we see down the road that drives us forward. It's, it's, a, it's something that we can almost dream about, but it's not present reality. It's a, a vision of the future. Our mission is what we do when we get out of bed in the morning that drives us towards the vision. It's the things that we do day to day. We exist to do this today because it's driving us towards that vision. It's helping us see that, that vision come to reality. That's our mission. Our values are the essential things that create the culture we need to do the mission. In other words, it's the non-negotiables. This is the culture we are trying to create because if we don't have it, we can't do the mission. And if we can't do the mission, we'll never see the vision realized. My family and I went on, recently went on a 3,400-mile road trip in May and June around the country. And we had this wonderful vision for what it would be. We wanted to just get away and unplug and rest. And we went to almost every place, we did go to every place that we've ever lived and saw old friends. And as we sat in the driveway getting ready to leave on this trip, the vision was we're gonna go around the country and we're gonna get to spend time with people that we have not seen or talked to in a very long time. And we're gonna enjoy eating with them. We're going to sit in their backyards and laugh. Our kids are going to get to know each other because when we knew them, they didn't have kids either. And we're just going to really enjoy our time together as a family and with these friends that we haven't seen in a very long time. That was the vision as we got ready to pull out of our driveway. Well, the mission then became, we got to drive 3,400 miles. We got to get up every day and we got to go, let's get the next 100 miles in so we could get to that next place in the journey. Or if we didn't do that, the vision would never be realized. We would just sit in our driveway. 
What we realized, though, as we were in the car driving on this mission to see the vision realized, we realized we need to create a culture here in this van. I mean, we have three children under the age of 10, and we're about to drive 3,400 miles with them in the car. We need to create a culture. We need some essential things that we're going to hold on to, or else we're not going to make this. So number, rule number one became stay positive. Stay positive. Even when the two-year-old has been screaming for an hour, stay positive. Even when you're held up in traffic and traffic sitting still for an hour, which it was between Nashville and Memphis, stay positive. Because if we get negative, then we just spiral down and then the mission derails and we'll never see the vision realized. So rule number one, our value number one, was stay positive. Value number two was protect the iPad. Protect the iPad. Because there's only so many times you can tell kids, read a book. I don't know when we're going to be there. Read another book. Eventually we had to say, yes, you can watch a movie. So the iPad had to be charged. The iPad had to be positioned correctly. And the iPad had to be full of films and movies. And so part of the culture we created in the car was protect the iPad at all costs. Otherwise, we'd get derailed from our mission and we would not be able to see the vision realized. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about vision, mission, and values. And I want to read to you our vision statement. I want to read to you our vision statement. We envision a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus and going out to proclaim and demonstrate God's kingdom among all people, sectors of society, and spheres of life. We're going to look at from the words we to King Jesus. So would you say that with me now? We envision a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus. Amen. Do you see that? I mean, can you picture that in this room? People from all walks of life gathering together to joyfully praise the one who's seated on the throne, to joyfully praise the king who has died for our sins. Can you, can you imagine that? I mean, in this area that's so diverse with Russians and Romanians and Peruvians and Puerto Ricans and white people from New Jersey and people who have grown up here and people who have stacked wallets and people who have empty wallets. I mean, can you envision all those people coming together and saying, there's something more important than any one of us, and that's Jesus Christ. And we are going to be a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully lift up his name. That's a big vision, but that's what vision is. It's not here yet. And for me personally, I feel very convicted around the idea of vision. Some people ask me, what's your vision? And my response has changed over the years. Now what I say is, it doesn't matter what my vision is. It doesn't matter what my vision is. Because my job as a pastor is not to come up with a vision. My job is to examine the scriptures and go, what's God's vision? Whatever his vision is, I should get on board with that. Now, pastors have strategies and philosophies of ministry and things like that, but I feel deeply convicted that this isn't really my gig. My job is to go, God, what is your vision for your people? 
Not where I want to take this church, but where do you want to take this church? Not some secret message from God, but what it says right here in Scripture. What it says right here in Scripture. And here's the reality. If we don't do that, if we just go, what's our vision? We will numb the vision down to something that we can accomplish with the resources we have and the people we have. But if it's God's vision, we have to rely on him to bring it to expression because we don't have the resources to do it. It's greater and bigger than any one of us or what we can put together to accomplish. As we look at the scripture this morning, Renette's going to come forward and read for us from Revelation 7. As we look at the scripture, I want you to see this as where God is taking his church, where God is taking his people. We get this picture where of, a, of, a, of the sort of the end of time where God's people are gathered together worshiping Jesus. Revelation 7, 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worship God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. Thank you, Renette. We get this picture of the end game of the church where the church is headed, where God is taking the church, the purpose of our salvation is worship. Where we are going as a people is an eternal worship service before the throne of God. That is the end game of 
the church. And I don't just mean our church, but I mean the church, God's people who are saved by Jesus' work throughout all time in all places. The end game is worship. Worship. What, what is worship? Worship is this uh, derived from this old English word, worth-ship. It's ascribing worth to something. You are worthy. And we see through uh, this chapter that really the, the, the whole tone of the chapter is worship. Ascribing worth. It's, it's when someone lesser bows down before someone greater and says, you are worthy. You are worthy. Worship can be confusing because it really involves both an adoration, a, a, like a heart affection, but also a submission, a lowering of self. And I think that we have lost this idea of worship in our culture. Like it's not really an idea that we talk about a lot. And one of the reasons why is because we don't really have an idea of things that are lesser and greater. Everything is accessible. Everything's become common. Through the internet, you can look up anything. You can get your hands on anything. And so this idea that there might be something greater, it, it, it eludes us. We've kind of lost a sense of awe about anything. You know, one place where people have a sense of awe is the Grand Canyon. You know, if people go to the Grand Canyon, what happens? They're like, this is so much greater than me. They have this sense of awe, but oftentimes they treat the Grand Canyon as if it's anything else, like anything else, even though they have a sense of awe about it. Do you know that two to three people die per year from falling over the edge of the Grand Canyon? Why do they die? It, 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 it's because they want it on their terms. The Grand Canyon's amazing and beautiful and it creates a sense of awe, but I want it to be like everything else. No danger. This is much greater than you. That sense of awe should have a sense of submission with it. Like, I need to be careful because this is greater than I am. And when we begin to start to pull those things out, we're getting closer to what it means to worship, to ascribe worth to something or someone and have awe about them and then bow down before them. Our culture is lost that idea of worship, but here's the funny thing. Even though we've lost the idea of worship, everyone still worships. Everyone practices worship every day in their life. That we all ascribe worth to something, mostly unconsciously. We all center our lives around something, and whether that might be money, or pleasure, or sex, or a career, or power, or comfort, or control, we might ascribe worth to those things and say life is only worth living if it's full of money and pleasure. I'm not fully alive unless I'm sexually active or I have the career I want. I'm less of a human being unless I have the power I feel I should have or unless my life is comfortable or unless I'm in control. And when you start to say it like that, you begin to realize that everyone worships something. And most of the time, we're not even conscious of it. We're making decisions in our life based on what we hold awe of. And here's the trap. We pursue these things because we think that they will give us life, but we often lose our life chasing after them. Like you never really get your hands on a life full of pleasure, right? 
You can never totally get in control. You can never have enough power. And so you end up in this trap where what you're pursuing actually has you. It has you. See, even though we've lost this idea of worship in our culture, everyone worships every day. We worship every day. We center our lives around something. And that's what we see in in this picture in Revelation. But it's not so much what they're worshiping, it is who they're worshiping. Who is worshipped? And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. God and the Lamb are worshipped. And it's interesting here that when he talks about the Lamb, that is Jesus, but it doesn't say Jesus, it says the Lamb. That's sacrificial language from the Old Testament. It's this idea that sinners needed their sins covered over. The, the wages of sin is death. And so if someone who's a sinner is going to get right with God and not get the punishment they deserve, someone else has to die on their behalf. And so in the Old Testament, a lamb was sacrificed in place of the people in order that the wrath of God would be poured out on that lamb and not on the people, and then the people could have right relationship with God. And what we see here in this heavenly picture is that God and not a lamb, but the lamb are worshipped. John is building throughout Revelation. We're in chapter 7, but he's already given us a preview in chapter 5. In chapter 5, there's this heavenly picture again that we see. And God is on the throne and he holds out this scroll. And we get the sense this isn't any ordinary piece of paper. This is a very important scroll that holds the secrets of history and the exact plan of God's purposes and promises. And they cry out, who is worthy to hold this scroll and to open it? Crickets. No one steps forward. And John, who's seen this vision, begins to weep because he sees the importance of this scroll, but there's no one important enough to open up the scroll that has the secrets of life and and the secrets of God's purposes in it. But then someone cries out, there is someone who's worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he's worthy because he's conquered. And then John looks around, but there's no lion. You're expecting a lion, but what you see in place of a lion is a lamb. And it's so interesting, it says the lamb is slaughtered, but standing. In other words, he looks like he's been killed, but he's alive. He died, but he was resurrected. The lamb is a representation of Jesus, and he is given the scroll. Because he is worthy. And when John sees the worthiness of the Lamb to take the scroll, and when everyone in this heavenly picture sees the worthiness of the Lamb, worship happens. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people by God or for God by your blood for every tribe 
and language and people and nation. You are worthy because you were slaughtered. The worthiness of Jesus for worship is because he has completely accomplished salvation on our behalf. Christ came to this earth. He was born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was, he was crucified. He died and was buried. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. The slaughtered lamb now stands. And as in his return into the heavenly scene, he has accomplished everything that you and I need to be fully reconciled to God. He is the lamb that was sacrificed in your and my place. The wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross. And if you turn away from your sins and you hold on to Jesus through faith, that salvation is applied to you. And Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because the scroll is actually about him and what he's done. He is the very focal point of history. He is the very center of God's purposes and promises. So of course, he's worthy to open the scroll. And the worship continues. The elders and the creatures who are in heaven say, you are worthy to receive. Keep going, one more slide. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. There were number, their number was countless, thousands plus thousands of thousands. That's a lot of people. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshiped. Jesus is worthy to receive praise and honor and glory and wisdom because of what he has accomplished for our salvation. He died, but he's alive. He was crucified, but resurrected. He was the slaughtered lamb, but he's now standing. He died as the righteous one for the unrighteous, as the sinless one for the sinful, as the one with power. He laid his power down that he might die for us who are powerless. And that, that, that salvation is so effective that you're actually in this chapter. You might not know it, uh, but there are people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language who are gathered around the throne who have been saved by the work of Christ. And it doesn't say that they're covered with their sin. It doesn't say that they're, they're pushed back because of their shame. Rather, each of them has been given a robe that's, that's white, meaning that their sins have been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation and tribe and people and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes. Their salvation has been accomplished and they're cleansed and they're not treated as second-class citizens. They're invited to share and celebrate in the victory of Jesus on their behalf. 
That's what the palm branches mean. Royalty. We're loyal because Jesus is royal. And the amazing thing as we talk about worship is these people are worshiping the Lamb, the risen Jesus, and they are fully alive. They are freed by their worship of Jesus rather than entrapped and snared like the things that we often worship. These people are fully alive and joyful because of what Christ has done on their behalf. Can you see it here? As you get a little bit of that heavenly picture, can you picture it even in this room a little bit? People joyfully worshiping, fully alive to Christ, bowing down and adoring Him, but full of joy and awe because of what Jesus, the Lamb, has done on their behalf. The worth of the Lamb. Worship. Worship comes from understanding the worth of Jesus. And I think one thing that we need to lean into as we talk even about this heavenly picture and seeing the worth of Jesus and then wanting this room to be full of people worshiping is this. The worship of Jesus is not really for us. The worship of Jesus is for Jesus. The worship of Jesus is for Jesus. And I think that there's a lot of confusion around this in the American church because we've started calling our worship services worship experiences. And we think about going to worship to get something rather than going to give our worship to Jesus. And the reason that we've gotten confused is because as a church in the United States, we've bought into this idea that we're consumers. And so I'm going to go find a place where I can worship and I can get something. When the primary, play, when the primary thing about worship is you're going to give something. The worship of Jesus includes us, but it's not for us, it's for Jesus. And I think we've lost this sense of awe about who he is and we've lost the picture of his glory and his worth and worship has become primarily for us. And as we lose that, we change worship services and we make them more about entertainment. We make them more about giving people an emotional high. It becomes more about sideshows and smoke machines than the sacrifice of the sun. It becomes more about having entertaining characters on stage rather than exalting the king. Worship is for us in the sense that we're participating in it. But worship is ultimately for Jesus. It's ultimately for Jesus. We get it backwards. We come to worship to get rather than coming to give. But when we get it right, when we come to worship to give, we actually get something. Like when worship is not about us, but about Jesus, we walk away with joy and awe. But when we come to worship just to get something, we might get a little emotional buzz. We might get excited and then it, then it goes away. If the worship of Jesus is for Jesus, we need to primarily come to worship to give. But the amazing thing is when we give, we get something. We get that fresh awe of who Christ is and what he's done for us and the joy of fully being included in his family and knowing that we have received the love of God in Christ and that we are part of his victory. 
Salvation is ours. The white robe is yours. It's waiting for you around the throne of Jesus Christ. You're fully saved by what he has done because he was slaughtered, but he didn't stay in the tomb. He's now standing and he's risen again. And as you begin to see Jesus, the other stuff doesn't really matter because all you really want is Jesus first. Smoke machines, no smoke machines. I don't care because I see Jesus risen from the dead. Now don't go around and tell people they can't have smoke machines. But you get what I'm saying. It's not about the sideshow, it's about the sun. It's not about being entertained, it's about awe of Jesus Christ. It's about gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus. Risen from the dead. I read a story about an elderly woman who showed up at her church, and it was a diverse church of multi-generations. And this elderly woman could barely hear or barely see, but she sat on the front row every week and praised her heart out to King Jesus. And this elderly woman was approached by a young woman in her church, and she said, why do you come every week? You have a hard time seeing what's happening on stage. You have a hard time hearing what's going on, and you probably can't read through the lyrics on the slides or in the bulletin. What do you get out of this? And the woman said, I'm not here to get anything. I'm here to give. This is what she said. She said, I'm not here for what I can get out of the service, but for what I can give. I get the bulletin mailed to me ahead of time, and I get out my magnifying glass, and I read it through, and then I read the scriptures and the hymns we will sing, and I think and pray through what may be God's word for me in this. So when I come to the service, I'm ready to worship, and I give that to God, even though I'm getting back perhaps less than some in that particular hour. She came to worship to give to the king rather than just to get something. The answer isn't like try hard, shut off your emotions, and don't worry, uh, don't like just try hard to give. No, the answer is to see the worth of Jesus Christ. And as you see the worth of Jesus Christ, you become someone who wants to give to him. Everything else becomes secondary beyond worshiping the Lamb. See, the vision of the end game for us is worship of God and of King Jesus risen from the dead. But the vision also includes a diversity of people who are worshiping King Jesus. All these people are coming together because the Son is the show. The Lamb is the light. We envision a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus. If you can put it on 7, chapter 7, verse 9, John sees, after this I looked, and these are the people with the white robes. There was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one can number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. Now think about how this amazing is, how amazing this is. When nations get together, what do they talk about? Border disputes, trade wars, 
laws about how things are going to interact between their countries, but they're not doing that. The nations are united together worshiping the king of the nations. What about when tribes get together? We don't have much of a tribal society, but if you go to Asia or Africa, that's how it works. Things are very tribal, and tribes either do or do not like each other. And when they don't like each other, it can get violent. There's hatred and revenge based on things that happen in the, sometimes the, the near past, but sometimes things that are happened long, long time ago. I know some of my friends who are from different tribes in East Africa, it's very hard to forget the past and the conflict that they've had with other tribes. But here, what do you see? Tribes united before the lion of the tribe of Judah. Not disputing the past, not talking about revenge or hatred, but worshiping because there's something grander than any one of them or any one of their tribes. People from every nation and tribe, but also people from every language. What I love about this passage is it says there's people from every language, but then if you go to verse 10, it doesn't say they cried out in English, they cried out in Spanish, or they cried out in any one language. It just says these people from all these different languages cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And we're meant to get the impression that they're saying this in Russian, in Romanian, in Spanish, in English, in Creole. And even though they're saying it differently, they're saying the same thing. People from every language worshiping the Lamb. When we first started New City, I was telling people, listen, we're going to do our best to be a multilingual church. And the reason is, is because so many of our brothers and sisters around us don't speak English. And if we really want to be the body of Christ, we've got to learn to include other languages, whether that's through in translation or whatever. We have to figure out how to do that. And one lady who was part of the team at this time just said, listen, if you're going to speak in any other language besides English, I'm out. Like, I just can't deal with that, and I'm not going to like your church. And my response is, well, you're not going to like heaven then. You're not going to like heaven. Because in heaven is going to be this multilingual place. And how is that going to work out? I don't know. But here in the text, we see people from every tribe and nation and people group and language worshiping Christ together. And we want to look at that vision and bring that to expression here. Which is one of the reasons why our worship team doesn't just sing in English. Sings in Spanish and French sometimes. Can you see that picture there and begin to bring it here? Begin to bring it into the now. I mean, what if Cubans and Canadians and Russians and Romanians and Puerto Ricans and Peruvians and the rich and poor and Jamaicans and Jews and blacks and white and Colombians and Creoles, what if we got together and what if more and more people were added to worship Jesus? What style would it be? Well, I don't know. But the name of Jesus would be lifted up. The focus would be on the lamb. People would walk in the room and go, how in the world are all of you in the same room together? Jesus. That's it. That's the only reason. We step outside the church. Sometimes we don't even like each other. 
But Jesus draws us together to worship. And see, that's the thing. As this happens, we'll actually have to deal with more things. We're going to have to deal with black and white. We're going to have to deal with rich and poor. But the reality is the early church had to deal with those things as well. Almost in every one of Paul's letters and all throughout the book of Acts, they're dealing with Jew-Gentile. They're dealing with rich and poor. They're dealing with widows who don't have access to power. And they're working it out because they know it's an expression of things to come. So this multi-ethnic, multilingual, multiracial thing is not optional. It's part of where God is taking us. And as we begin to see that in the future, we want to see it come to expression now. And that all happens as we capture a vision of the worth of Jesus Christ. How are we going to get there? Well, that's our mission. Remember, we talked about vision and mission. Our mission, briefly summarized, is to make disciples of all people in the reconciling gospel. And we're going to get into that in the next few weeks. But today, I really want you to see that this is actually where God is taking us. Like, this is God's vision for us and for churches around Hollywood and for churches around the United States and the world and all Christians and followers of Jesus from all time, everywhere, together to worship King Jesus. He is committed to taking us to this place. It will happen. Do you want it? Can you see it here? There's one day coming when God will bring us there. And all the stuff that we have to deal with now, all of our problems and all of our personal issues and all the realities of being a multi-ethnic blended family that we're trying to work out, some of that stuff will never get fixed, although we should try and fix it, but it will get fixed when we're before the throne of Jesus Christ. God is so committed to these things. He will make it happen. I love how this passage ends because it's language that's used of the new city. There's a passage at the end of the Bible where it talks about being in the new city. And this passage points us to that. It's the same language. Then John is told, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. It's relational intimacy that we will have with God. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. People of God, that is where we are. That is why our church is named New City. That is why our focus is on the blended family of diverse people who are joyfully worshiping King Jesus. Because we have an incredible hope that will come to expression. Not because you believe it enough, but because God said it will be reality. We envision a blended family of diverse people gathering together to joyfully worship King Jesus. Jesus. That is where we are going, and that is what we want to see come to expression now. God will bring us to there in the future, but he'll also bring it to us expression, to expression now. And 
the way we know he's committed is because he has given us this table here. He has given us this table here as a promise of his commitment to us. Paul writes that every time we partake of the bread and the wine, we proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. And when he comes, worship all things made new. Every tear will be blotted from your eye and you will spend eternity in relational intimacy with Jesus Christ who has died on your behalf.